1: You can't possibly do your best work if you are being harmed by the way you're being treated by your colleagues.
2: Whatever problem you're solving, whatever okay you have, your people are the ones that get it done. So we have to optimize for that experience.
0: Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the Engineering Leadership Community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. This episode is a conversation with Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor and Just Work and with Trey Bryant, CEO at JustWork. And we cover practical tools to eliminate workplace injustice so that you can unlock greater collaboration in your engineering teams and yield higher performance across your organization. We get into topics like how to interrupt and stop bias through tools like bias interrupters, how to respond to people if they're concerned about the word police, and how to overcome the default to silence using tools like I statements, it statements, and you statements that confront different levels of workplace injustice. So let me introduce you to Kim and Trier. Kim Scott is the author of Just Work, Get Shit Done Fast and Fair, as well as Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity, which is one of our community's all-time favorite books. Kim was a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and other tech companies. She was a member of the faculty at Apple University, and before that led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick teams at Google. Trier Bryant is co-founder and CEO of Just Work LLC, which is the implementation counterpart to Just Work, the book. Trier previously held leadership roles at Astra, Twitter, Goldman Sachs, and proudly served as a combat veteran in the United States Air Force as a captain leading engineering teams while spearheading diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives for the Air Force Academy, Air Force, and Department of Defense. Trier also advises leading companies like Equinox, Airbnb, SoundCloud, Alto, Rockefeller Foundation, and others on their talent and DEI strategies. Enjoy our conversation with Kim Scott and Trier Bryant. Kim, Trier, welcome to the show. Thank you both so much for joining us.
1: It's great to be here.
0: This is so exciting. I think to make a quick remark the whole reason why this conversation happened was as soon as you both launched the book Just Work, one of our members reached out to us and says, you absolutely need to have a conversation about Just Work. (laughs) And even so much so connected us with your team and connected us via email, because I think both Jerry and I were dealing with the imposter syndrome of like, oh man, should we reach out? Like, how can we make this conversation happen? This would be so exciting. And they just go ahead and went for it and connected us. And it was really, really special. So I think all of that to say, we are so excited to have you both joining us on the show.
1: We are thrilled to be chatting with you all.
2: We are. Inge leaders, right?
0: Yes. Yes. I mean,
2: what a powerful group in our industry.
0: (laughs) Yes. So I wanted to kick off the conversation to set some of the context because when I was reading Just Work, specifically on the chapter of recognizing systems of injustice, specifically on the topic of oblivious exclusion, I came across (laughs) a quote that I, I thought would help set the context of our conversation. The quote met me where I was at and captured a lot of the things that I was personally confronting while reading the book. So the quote is, if you're the leader, the fails here may feel especially discouraging. You've worked hard to avoid the worst kinds of things that can happen. You did it because you care. You don't think of yourself as biased or prejudiced. It's hard to imagine yourself as discriminatory, which is the problem. You are all about good intentions, not hard questions. You were looking at the organization you wish you had, not the one you have, and you need help understanding what's really going on around you. And so this quote really felt like it hit me where I was at. And that's the purpose of our conversation today is to help people not only understand workplace injustice, but to gain the powerful tools to ask the hard questions and to take action to eliminate workplace injustice. And so I guess probably the best place to start is at the beginning. And so I think, Kim, to focus on you really quick, you know, your first book, Radical Candor, is one of our community's all-time favorites. So why Just Work? What was the origin story for writing the book?
1: Well. You know, if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. And believe me, I did after Radical Candor came out. In fact, I was giving a presentation at a tech company in San Francisco, and the CEO of the company was a a person who I had been close colleagues with for the better part of a decade, one of my favorite people, somebody I really liked and respected, and one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And so I'm at her company. I'm giving this radical candor presentation. And when I finished, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I really love radical candor. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's a lot harder for me to put it into practice than it is for you. Because the moment I offer even the most compassionate candor then I get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And her words made me have sort of three simultaneous revelations. The first was that I had failed to be the kind of colleague that I want to be. I had failed to be an upstander for her. I had been sort of in denial about the kinds of things that were happening to her in the workplace. Moreover, I had been in denial about the kinds of things that were happening to me in the workplace. If it was harder for her to be radically candid than it was for me, it was harder for me than it was for my colleagues who are men. And last but not least, I had failed to be the kind of leader that I wanted to be. I wrote that passage, Patrick, that you just read really for myself, because I care deeply about creating organizations that are fair, where everybody can just get their work done and enjoy doing it. And I had failed too many times. So that was when I decided I better sit down and write just work.
0: I really resonate with the experience of denial. I think especially reading that passage in that whole section in the book. I think that's the big experience for leaders in a lot of tech companies is sort of the denial and ignorance of the things that are going on in their organizations. Yeah. Trier, you've led several huge DEI initiatives and transformations across a couple pretty notable organizations, the US Air Force, Goldman Sachs, Twitter, and Astra. So how did you and Kim first connect to co-found Just Work, the organization together? How did this new, amazing relationship kick off between you two?
2: Yeah, well, Kim gave me an early version of the book, and I had the opportunity to read it. And two things came from that. One it was such a powerful read for myself and just really sharpening my own perspective on the experiences that I had in my career. You know, when we jump into the framework and we talk about the root causes of workplace injustices, and one of the things we'll discuss is bullying. If you would have asked me, Patrick Trier, have you ever been bullied in your career? I would say, no. Have you met me? Have you worked with me? Like you come for me, I'm going to come for you. But then I read Kim's book and the way that she just takes these human experiences that are very nuanced and gives you this language for you to name it. Cause you can't solve things that you can't name. And so for me, I could never address being bullied in my career because I didn't name it in that way. That's not how I viewed it. And so I thought that was like really powerful for me and just caused me to have a lot of different reflections on my previous career experiences. And then the second thing was is being a DEI practitioner, you know, if you know Kim and you're familiar with radical candor, she's gonna give you a two by two and she's gonna give you a framework, right? something that's practical and tactical to put into your toolkit and we need more of those frameworks in the DEI space to give leaders to give individuals to give organizations so that we can you know shift this conversation of DEI and I Diversity, equity, and inclusion from talking about it and all the reasons why it's wrong and why we should care and why we should focus on it to actionable solutions that we can put into place. And that is what I think is so powerful about the Just Work framework. So I went to Kim and I said, Kim, this is amazing. And how do we get this into as many organizations and to as many leaders as possible? And that's how we have Just Work, the company.
1: And I, of course, was thrilled to hear that because another one of the things that I learned after Radical Canner was published is that no matter how good a book is, and I really think Just Work is a great book, but people (laughs) rarely change their behavior because they read a book. And so I really was excited to have the opportunity to work with somebody like Trier who has deep expertise in how to roll these ideas out in a way that is safe and practical and going to be effective.
0: That's great. I'm so excited to dive into the framework. I think the thing that stands out to me about Just Work, both the book and the organization, is the fierce commitment to action. And I think that the simplicity of the framework, I found myself almost right after reading the first chapter, being able to apply it, or at least become aware of the framework in these different interactions. And so I'm I'm really excited to share some of those tools with our audience. But I think the first thing I want to illustrate is to really capture why this matters and the impact of workplace injustice, because I think for a lot of people, this can be invisible in understanding both the systemic impact it has on our organizations and work, but also on an individual. So I was wondering if, if you both could just share a little bit more about why workplace injustice and the concepts of bias, prejudice, and bullying are such a big deal and the impact that has on our organizations and, I guess, especially the individuals that work on our teams.
1: Yeah, I think that both the collective and the individual impact are really important to consider. So you can't possibly do your best work if you are being harmed by the way you're being treated by your colleagues. And th- there was a period in my career where I felt like my employer had worked really hard to hire the very best, smartest people. And then they told half of us to sit down and shut up. And that was like, Why would you do that? Like, why don't you want me to do my best work? And so I think one of the things that I really am focused on is I think we all know, especially in tech, that humanity's superpower is its ability to collaborate. We can get things done together that we could never dream of individually. And so you want to create organizations that are optimized for collaboration and that don't allow one person to coerce another. I have really never met anyone who genuinely wanted to work in like a 1984, everybody's marching in lockstep kind of environment. We don't want to demand conformity. And yet we so often do without even realizing what we want to do is respect individuality. So how can we offer some respect, some collaboration so we can get shit done fast and fair?
2: Yeah. And then also, as organizations continue to diversify their teams and think about representation and acknowledge so much research and data that's out there that says the more diverse perspectives you have on your team, the better your solutions are going to be, your revenue is going to increase, Like the data is there. However, if we're going to bring in these underrepresented professionals, we have to just acknowledge what does inclusion mean and how do we, again, optimize for our talent to be the best that they can be. And so it's really interesting. I feel like every time we talk about this, Kim, something else comes up, but like, it took me a while. Like if the the title, Just Work, I read it as like, just work. Like, let's get rid of the shit and just work, right? But then it was like, I had this aha moment, like two o'clock in the morning, and then I text Kim and I was like, Kim, you also meant just work like the justice of it and then we were doing another podcast and someone was explaining and then there's a third lens right of just work and so it's really powerful so it's all of those things combined doing the work in an equitable way and optimizing you know what we get from our talent so that we can again yield the best results within an organization because nothing any company wants to do whatever problem you're solving whatever okay are you have your people are the ones that get it done. So we have to optimize for that experience.
0: Wow. So the third meaning was helping unleash people?
1: Yeah, so that they could do the best work.
0: That's great. So I guess this brings us to the framework to dig in because I'm sure now at this point, people are like, yes, this is what I want to create in my world. I want to remove the shit and I want yeah. to allow people the experience <laughs> to be able to contribute their best selves to work. And I think so much of our own systems, our structures and ourselves get in the way of that. So. Can you break down for us, what are the root causes of workplace injustice and introduce us to the Just Work framework?
1: Yeah, it's tempting just to call it the shit, but let's dig in. Let's get our fingers dirty and dig in and define the shit. So I think the root causes are bias, prejudice, and bullying. And I think too often we conflate these three different things and and they are very different. So bias will define as not meaning it. Prejudice will define as meaning it. And this was tricky for me. I mean, very often in my career, I want to believe no one could actually, but they do, unfortunately, actually consciously believe in one group's inferiority sometimes. So you got to confront that. And then last, bullying is just being mean or meaning harm. Once we can disentangle these three different things, then we can know how to respond both as individuals, as leaders, and as upstanders.
2: And then when we're also talking about these root causes of workplace injustice, we also have to name like what are the different roles that people play? And so the roles that we talk about are the person being harmed, an upstander, person causing harm, and a leader. And these roles are very different and they also, you know, warrant different responses in these situations. So, you know, we talk about if you're a person who's harmed, you choose a response. And this is the one, this is really important because this is the only role that we feel you have a choice, right? but we wanna empower folks and lead folks with the tools that you don't default to silence. You'll hear us talk about defaulting to silence a lot because too often we default to silence because you don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. But if you're a person harmed and you choose not to respond, that is your choice. But in all these other roles, we really want people to at least have some type of idea or some type of tool that they can refer to on how to respond in those situations. So for an upstander, you know, their role is to intervene. And an upstander is a bystander that does intervene and goes into action. And the other thing to call out about being an upstander is You're not like swooping in to save a damsel in distress or something like that. You're being an upstander to the injustice, to the injustice, and you're intervening on behalf of the injustice that's occurring. Then for the people who are causing harm, their role is to listen and to address. And this can be challenging and this can be difficult, but really coming from a place of empathy and understanding to listen and address. And then finally, leaders have a role to prevent these workplace injustices from occurring. And we know that they may happen, but if they do happen, what are the mechanisms that we can put into place and the structure so that we don't reinforce this behavior or perpetuate this behavior within our organizations and teams?
1: So that's bias, prejudice, and bullying. Those are the roles. Then the plot thickens. What happens when you layer power on top of bias, prejudice, and bullying? Then you get discrimination, harassment, and physical violations. So we can talk about those things as well. But let's start with bias, prejudice, and bullying.
0: A lot to dig in here. And I I really appreciate the distinction. Let's start with bias. How do you recommend people to become aware of or interrupt their own biases that may come up that are not on purpose or they don't mean it? What would you recommend for someone?
1: So, if you're a leader, what you want to do is you want to make it expected. You want upstanders to be expected to intervene. And right now, the default is to silence. So, I'll, I'll share a story with you about a time when the right thing happened, which it doesn't happen often enough. And then Trier can talk about how to actually operationalize this. So, this friend of mine, Aileen Lee, was going to a meeting with two colleagues who are men. And so they file into the conference room and they sit down at the conference table and the people from the other company, all of whom were men, started to file in. The first guy sits across the table from the guy to Aileen's left. The next guy files in, sits across from the guy to his left and then they file on down the table. So Aileen is left dangling alone at one end of the table. And so it's sort of a, a subtle, unconscious exclusion. And then Aileen starts to talk. And the people on the other side of the table respond to what she said, but they respond to the men who are with her. It's as though they have spoken and not Aileen. And so this happens once. It happens twice. We've all seen this happen. And Aileen's business partner is getting increasingly uncomfortable And eventually he stands up and he says, I think Aileen and I should switch seats. And that was all he has to do. They switch seats, the whole dynamic in the room changes. Everybody realizes what's going on and they change their behavior. And it was much easier for him to do that as an upstander that would have, if Aileen had stood up and said, let's change seats, it would have been like bias heaped on top of bias. She would have been called abrasive or bossy or whatever. And so it was easier for him, A. And then let's take a look at his motivations. It's both senses of just work. First of all, he cared about Aileen, and he didn't want her to be treated unfairly. So that was the justice part. But also, Aileen had the expertise that was going to win his team the deal. And he wanted to win the deal. (laughs) And he knew that they couldn't just work if the other side was not listening to what Aileen said. And so... That's why he did it. So he wasn't sort of trying to protect Aileen as some kind of, as Trier said, damsel in distress. He wanted to stand up to the injustice and he also wanted to win the deal. So that almost never happened. So, what can leaders do to make sure that kind of thing happens more often?
2: So, what we discuss in the framework is called bias interrupters. And so, what bias interrupters are It's a shared vocabulary and norm that teams and organizations can create so that people understand when and how to interrupt the bias. So let's start with a shared vocabulary. What is the word or phrase that your team or organization is gonna use so that whenever someone hears it, that they know, hey, someone is exhibiting bias, behavior, attitude, and that person is calling them in. We like to say not calling them out, but calling them in for the feedback. And it's a learning moment for everyone. I bet that, you know, Kim and I will interrupt someone's bias at least once on this podcast. It happens all the time. And so, you know, it could be something like, hey, bias alert. It could be Kim and her editor, they used Yo. Kim and I are teaching a course right now and we throw a purple flag, purple because of the book and, you know, just throwing a purple flag. So whenever we throw a purple flag, everyone knows, okay, there's bias, we're calling someone in and we're calling that in to disrupt that. So then what's the norm that happens after that? And this can be a little tricky because, you know, this can be uncomfortable for some and depending on the culture and the people, it can be threatening if someone feels like, oh my gosh, like I made a mistake, oh no. But that's not the culture that we wanna instill, right? Again, this is about a learning moment. This is about having a growth mindset and we should want that feedback so that we understand how to have the most inclusive language as possible. The norm can be when someone you know calls you in and says, hey, purple flag, all right, say what it is that you're calling them in for. And then they could say, oh, yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, I'm, I've been working on that. I would say the most common one is for folks that are trying to get rid of guys. Stop saying guys. We're like, yes, I know. I'm working on that. Thanks for flagging that. Okay. And then we just move on and we go back to work. But what happens if someone's calling you on something that you're not familiar with? So then we recommend the norm to be, you know, you can say, hey, thank you for flagging that. Why don't we connect after the meeting and we can have a conversation and learn more? Because I'm not quite sure what you're actually calling out. One of the norms that we have in the class that we're teaching is that because it's on Zoom and you have the chat, someone can throw a purple flag even in the chat and then also drop a link or a video, an article, or just provide the explanation there so that everyone has that moment to learn, creates that learning moment for everyone. And then also you can continue to, again, like we need to get shit done, right? So you can continue on with the course and the meeting, but you are interrupting that bias so that we're not letting it go unchecked. That will just perpetuate that from happening in the future.
1: So this is kind of a departure. In Radical Candor, we talk about the importance of criticizing in private. But if we don't point out, if we don't interrupt bias publicly, then we're reinforcing it. We're doomed to continue making the same mistake. And the other thing I have found about bias is that it's difficult to change. Your ha- it's, it was easy for me to say you all, because I grew up in Memphis. But for example, in the book, someone pointed out to me a a bias buster who I hired, actually Breeze Harper. I recommend if you need a good bias buster, hire Breeze Harper. But she pointed out to me that I often use sort of ableist sight metaphors, sloppy sight metaphors. And, And so I would say I see when what I really mean is I notice or I understand. And the problem with that is that it kind of implies that people who are blind don't understand, which of course they do just as well as those who have vision. And so I really wanted to change this. And I wanted to change it again for two reasons. One, because words matter to me. I'm a writer. I did not want to use sloppy metaphors. And two, because another one of the people who is helping me to edit the book is Zach Shore, who's a historian who's blind. And the last thing in the world... I wanted to do was to use language that would harm Zach, because I care about him. And so I really thought I had worked on it. I thought I had gotten it. And I decided I better sort of quantify my bias. So I did a search right before I sent the book in. And in a 350 page book, I used these kinds of ableist site metaphors 99 times, 99 times. I was stunned. And so we really need to have people pointing this out all the time if we're going to change it. And, and
2: one thing I, I want to just call out, and Patrick and Jerry, is because this is so funny, because I know how engineering managers think, right? I can just see so many folks right now, their wheels are turning and they're like, okay, oh, hey, this is great, but just work. or Kim, can you just give me a list of like, All of the things, right, that we should- All of the words. All of the words, all the phrases, and and that just doesn't exist. And it's interesting because our clients have literally asked for this, right? Like, just give me the list. And there's so many things, but what you should think about is your proximity to people who have different experiences, different intersections than you, those different biases will come up. And so just thinking about that and, and acknowledging that it may be different. And what's been really interesting, we've even been in sessions where people have flagged things that we've said that were unaware to us. And it was like, wow, I didn't know that. You know, that's so interesting. And so it's going to be your proximity, but to be open to when someone's calling you in and to take it as a learning. And again, if you're changing in your attitude, behavior, or something that you says allows for someone to have a more inclusive and just work experience where they're not thinking about that, but they're able to think about their work. Again, we're going to optimize for what you're going to get from your team.
0: Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I was thinking, because one of the things that you mentioned in the book, Kim, was about making it personal and thinking about people specifically when you're talking about bias or prejudice and the role that you play in it. So when you were mentioning, you know, ableist language and sights, I I have a friend in the sightless community, Jeremy, who went blind in college. And so that story really resonated with me because then I was able to really personify that to a really important person in my life and friend. When I think about that, man, like, I actually do use that type of language all the time, totally unconsciously, but it does have an impact, especially on him. And so personalizing that impact,
1: yeah. Just think about somebody you care about. And and then it becomes much easier to, to make the change because you don't want to hurt someone you care about.
0: And I think the challenge to kind of dig into some of the challenges a little bit, because I think my, my fear as a leader is like, I'm going to say the wrong thing. And one of the things you that will.
1: I'm... <laughs> you will. I will. Yeah. absolutely <laughs> I will. We will. We, we all will. will. Yeah. yeah.
0: I was hoping we could talk about that a little bit more because I feel like that may be a common fear that a lot of people listening in is like i'm going to say the I'm gonna say the wrong thing. what do I do?" But reading into some of the things you talked about, how to set this up with your team around calling people in and raising purple flags or throwing purple flags is the sort of the prerequisite of making mistakes so do you have any advice on how to frame or set the expectation when you're introducing bias interrupters in a way where people feel invited in? Is it something that you have to repeatedly revisit? What's the way to help embed it within the culture to make it accepted and understood and repeatable?
1: I think one of the things you can do as a leader is lead by example. And so one of the CEOs who I work with was trying to eliminate you guys, trying to stop saying you guys when he was addressing the whole company and not enough of the women, but at least a third of the people there were women. And he, at first, he decided that he was going to try to do this in private and not in public, not tell people what he was doing. And then once he had broken the habit, then he would announce to everyone else. And he realized two things. One was that it was actually very helpful for him to make mistakes in front of people, to be willing to say the wrong thing, and to explicitly say, I'm working on changing this. I want you all to point it out to me. And then for people to point it out. And if he slipped up and didn't say you all, he would say, why did no one point it out to me? And so now all of a sudden, there's an expectation that you've got to call in even the CEO of the company. Furthermore, he realized if it wasn't pointed out to him regularly, he wasn't going to be able to change the habit on his own because it was so deeply ingrained. So I think leading by example is one important thing that leaders can do. And also just saying, if you have a meeting and nobody interrupted any bias in the meeting, then that was a failure. That was a failure in that meeting because I promise you at least one biased thing gets said in every meeting, in every company, every day. So there's a lot of it out there. This is why it's useful to differentiate it from prejudice or bullying. It's expected that we have it and it must be crucially expected that we change it that we identify it and change it. You wanna sort of adopt a growth mindset around this. And the bias interrupters, another distinction is it doesn't mean that you're
2: the person is interrupting. It means that you're the person that feel any harm about it. Again, you can interrupt bias as an upstander. I will tell you as a black woman right now, especially doing this work in this moment, it's incredibly hard and it's draining. There are times where people will say something and I'm just exhausted. And I'm like, I'm just not in the mood right now. I don't have the energy right now to call it out, get and let people know like, you know, language. But Kim doesn't let anything fly. Like (laughs) Kim will throw flags all day and she holds people accountable. And honestly, it's really nice that she can catch Things that I think one of the things that we've thrown flags on, and I've thrown a flag on Kim, and I think this makes it more aware is Kim. At one point in time, she used slave master language, saying, "Hey, whatever's on my calendar, I'm a slave to my calendar." And I was like, "Hey, purple flag." And yeah. as soon as I said purple flag, Kim goes, "I can't believe I said that." Yes, and she was like, "Okay, thank you." Right. And then a couple of days later, we were talking about something, and we were in conversation, and we were talking about an agency problem for an HR people team where, you know, she said you have multiple masters. And I was like, purple flag. And she was like, did it again. "Again." How, right? And and it's fine. But but then in future conversations, when someone else uses that language, Kem can throw a flag and, and acknowledge that I don't have to. Bias interrupters, the responsibility is not on the person who may be harmed. You can be an upstander and call that as well. But again, as you're learning these things, call it out, call people in when you recognize this, and you learn this. And, and so they're going to be a teachable moment for everyone.
0: I have a couple follow up questions. As we're talking about language, words matter so much. There was a, a yeah. quote when I was reading, I think it was the first capital article that talked about the work that you two are doing. And I think Trier, you were quoted talking about like how to respond to the word police for somebody who's like, well, why do we have to, you know, be so focused on the words that we use? And Kim, you'd mentioned in the book about it's not necessarily that singular instance that causes the harm, but it's sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back on someone's ex- lived experience. And so I was wondering, you know, Trier, can you share a little bit more about, you know, how do you navigate a conversation where someone's like, why do we have to have word police? And and why does this matter? Can you share a little bit more about how do you confront that person who may be resistant to being mindful of language and how that impacts our ability to yeah. create more just work?
2: I was working with a leader at one of our clients and they came and they told me a story that they had just had a, this is a senior leader at a company and they had just had a meeting where the team was giving updates on revenue and they had absolutely just had a fantastic Q2 and went above and beyond whatever was expected for their results, for their KPIs that quarter. And afterwards, this very senior leader went up to the person who was doing the presentation and said, This is great. This is so exciting. Like this is going to be great for the board. Everyone's going to be so excited. You absolutely killed this work and you killed that presentation. And the person said, Hey, my family and I are from a place in the world right now where a genocide is going on. So I would appreciate it if you could use different language besides killing a presentation because I quite frankly don't want to be killing anyone. And you know, that leader took that feedback but it didn't sit right with them. And so in our next conversation, they told me this story and they were really frustrated. And they were just like, are we just in the point where I can't even give feedback to a really great performer on my team that lets them know that they did a great job on the project. And this leader was so focused on receiving that feedback, being called in for that feedback and was just really angry. And I said, you know, they're a great performer. They're doing a great job. And I said, do you know what that person left that meeting thinking about? The language that you use versus how they're going to then exceed the metrics in Q3. When you could have just apologized and said, hey, I appreciate that feedback, and maybe ask, where are you in the world that a genocide is going? Did you ask for someone to even share that, and you didn't follow up with any conversation? Like, how did that make that person feel? And I was like, if I were you as a leader... I would be willing to say and do everything within reason that would make my employees feel included, make them feel like they are supported so that they can continue to go on and do great work. And I was like, I would not be surprised if that person's performance did not increase or maybe just be stagnant beyond that experience because of now that burden that they're carrying of that experience, right? And that leader had not thought of it and followed up, apologized, and did have a conversation of what was going on in that part of the world and in their community. I've never had that feedback given directly to me, but ever since that story was shared with me, I have not told anyone, hey, you have killed it on a project or anything. There is a really great training that leaders could take at Goldman Sachs called Subtle Yet Significant, and it was subtle changes that leaders could make that would yield a significant change from their people. And to me, this is an example of a subtle change that you can make that will yield a significant impact with your people.
0: Subtle yet significant is so powerful. Go, Go ahead, Kim.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to remember that communication, and I'm going to just flag before I say this, this is an ableist metaphor. So if you can think of a better way to say it, I would love to know it. (laughs) So good communication, though, gets measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear. If you're not willing to understand how your words land for another person, you are going to fail as a communicator. And so I wouldn't say, oh, everybody should not be so sensitive. But rather, you know, you should learn how to speak in a way that is going to work for the person you're speaking to. One of the best moments at business school came when we were doing a case in which FDR invited Keynes to come and give him an economics lesson. And at the end, FDR didn't really get it. He didn't get Keynes's ideas. And the professor said, who was stupid, Keynes or FDR? And everybody was like, oh, FDR was stupid. And he was like, no, Keynes was stupid because he couldn't explain it. And I think that's just really important way to think about communication. You've got to communicate with another person in a way that they can hear and uh, that they can understand that, that you're not shutting them down to further communication. And I'm sure that each one of us on this podcast has a red word, a word that if you use it, I'm not going to hear another single word. The conversation may as well be over. And my word is probably different from Patrick's, is different from Jerry's, is different from Trier's. And so we need to be aware of what each other's red words are and not use them.
0: I guess to use some engineering language to increase efficiency and throughput, yes. it's <laughs> about if you simply change your language, you increase your efficiency and throughput with communication. Dramatic. An idea was inspired about changing language to be less ableist. Communication is not about point of delivery, it's about point of receiving. Does that help fit?
1: Perfect. I like it, <sighs> uh, especially for engineers.
0: I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was hoping we could talk about a couple of the other actions within the framework to address bias. Specifically, I was hoping we could talk a little bit more about I statements and how a couple of the different roles can use those to help, a, as you say hold up a mirror to bias to help people become aware of it, acknowledge it, and to be able to move past it. So can you help us better understand what are I statements, how do you use them, and how do you make them effective in conversation with people?
1: Yeah, so an I statement sort of invites the other person in to understand what they said in the way that you do. So, for example, early in my career, very first day of my very first internship of my whole career, I'm working at a bank in Memphis, And an executive at the bank comes up and he says to me, oh, I didn't know they let us hire pretty girls as interns. And so I know this is bias. I know he doesn't really mean it the way that it sounds to me. But of course, I didn't know what to say. So I didn't say anything, which is the default to silence that too many of us given to. And of course I didn't. I was 18. Who can blame me? But fast forward 30 years. Now I'm the author of Radical Candor. I'm writing a book, a new book, Just Work. I still can't think what to say. It is hard to know what to say. And I was talking to a guy who I'm on a board of directors with. And he said, here's what you could have said that would have stopped me in my tracks. He said, if you had said, I don't think I can work here because I don't believe you will ever take me seriously when you refer to me as pretty girl. He said, that would have been it. I never would have used that phrase again. So, of course, he was right. An I statement just explains to the person how you are experiencing what they're saying, or it can correct. Sometimes people will assume that. I have a different role than I do. I tell a story in the book about this guy who ran up to me and asked me to go fetch him a safety pin right before I was going. And all I had to say was, I'm the speaker. I don't work here. But it was hard for me to think. So when you are experiencing bias, if you use an I statement, it invites the other person in to understand the situation from your perspective. Also, if you're the upstander, an I statement is a great way or a leader to sort of point out bias to others, which is very different from what you need to say if it's prejudice or bullying.
0: We will definitely dive into that in a second, because I think, you know, as we escalate sort of the levels of injustice, we definitely want to equip people with those. So with I statements, you know, from an upstander perspective, this may oftentimes happen like within a team or after a team meeting. And so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that particular case study example. Is there a way that you would... Recommend approaching somebody who maybe exhibited bias in in that meeting, and to help them leverage an I statement.
1: Sure. I mean, what one thing you could say is, I don't think that you meant that the way it sounded, is an example. So you're just pointing out how it sounded to you, and you're also sort of saying, I don't think you meant it the way it sounded. So that's another e- example. And you can, as the upstander. You don't have to wait till after the meeting. Again, I really recommend pointing out bias in the moment because if one person is making that mistake, a lot of other people in the room
0: Mm -hmm.
1: are making that mistake. And so it's really useful to everyone, uh, especially if there's a norm like in the example I gave of Aileen her partner stood up and said, I think Aileen and I should switch seats. And the whole idea of an I statement is you may not know what is going to come out of your mouth next, but if you start with the pronoun I, then you're going to think of something. So so part of this is about momentum, is, is about saying something, I, and then seeing what comes out of your mouth next.
0: And to synthesize a couple points here, it's about saying something and to see what comes up, but the permission of making mistakes and making that okay to say something and then to deal with the the fallout. So this reminds me of a story, I think we we talked about this beforehand, but I wanted to bring it up here. We were doing an event on removing bias in the technical interview process. And, you know, synthesizing a couple points of what we talked about so far, going back to language matters, we were talking about removing either hyper masculine language from your job descriptions, because we were specifically talking about female candidates are more likely to opt out. And in this discussion, we were talking about other practices to remove bias from the technical interview process. And very much so like in tech, in terms of the demographic, we had one woman engineering leader on the call, and she was sharing the impact of how she had personally self-selected out of applying for jobs because of the language and everything we were talking about. And then in that same sentence, a male engineering leader Sort of interrupted her and did the whole mansplaining thing, explaining <laughs> her experience to her about being a woman engineering leader. And in that moment, I, I, I didn't know what to say. And I didn't know how to address that or, or intervene or to be a, an upstander in that moment. And both Jerry and I on that call were, were just were speechless and we didn't know what to do.
2: Yeah, I probably would have said something like one, I said Textio if everyone didn't catch that, but Textio is a fantastic tool and platform to help. Recruiting teams and hiring managers remove bias from their job descriptions. It's fantastic. If y'all don't know about Textio, like everyone should be using it, it's a really wonderful tool. But when we're talking about the hiring process, that is power, right? So you're talking about hiring managers. So that very quickly then turns into discrimination because bias or prejudice plus power is how you get discrimination. But in that moment, I I do want to just give you like what I would have said is I would have just, cut the person off and said, you know, I think that she understands that concept because like we have her here. She's been explaining that. It's so interesting how often that happens. And I also feel that a lot of times when someone finds themselves in that situation, it puts the candidate again, because of a power imbalance in a difficult situation, because I've even found myself in that situation where it's like, I'm not going to say anything. I'll just fall back. But that's how I would have handled it, you know, when I was younger in my career. But I think that that would have been an I statement that I would have used.
1: I think often humor can backfire, but often humor when it is is used well is ha-ha-aha. It helps people understand something that they were previously unaware of. So saying, I think, Bob, I'm just going to call this guy Bob. I think, Bob, you are giving us an Excellent demonstration of mansplaining. Thank you. Now let's hear from Sue about what is going on. And so hopefully, Bob doesn't like then punch you in the nose, but, but, well, it's over Zoom, so we're safe from that kind of physical violation. But, but hopefully, Bob has a sense of humor and can laugh. I mean, because mansplaining to me is in particular funny because it's so ridiculous. There's this great passage in the book about this woman who wrote a book about a photographer. And this man at a party starts explaining her own book to her, not realizing that she's written it. And she's so caught up in her role as ingenue, she doesn't even realize he's talking. And her friend keeps having to point its riotously funny essay. And so I think if we can point this out and sort of laugh about it, that's a good use of humor for mansplaining, if you can do it. But I also want to encourage you to just cut yourself some slack. Trier was very kind and said, I always notice. I do always notice, but I don't always speak up the way I wish I did. So I think try to not give in to the default to silence, but be kind to yourself, Patrick.
0: I was hoping we could escalate a little bit to the level of prejudice and to talk about how to approach confronting prejudice. I fear conflict and When we get to the levels of prejudice and bullying, I start to sweat to think about like, how do I do that? But the stories that you've shared of like the impact that that has on somebody when you have an upstander who is confronting injustice and it's not reliant upon the person being harmed and the impact that that has on people is astounding. So can you share a little bit about what are its statements? How can people use those to confront prejudice? And how do you do that? Well,
2: I was working at a company once and this company is definitely known for hiring the best and brightest. And we were hiring for another recruiting leader. And at the end of seeing multiple candidates were debriefing and it was very clear After the debrief that the top candidate was a black woman who came in and she interviewed with her natural hair, the way that I'm wearing my hair right now. But as all the interviewers were just talking about how great the candidate was and we would be so excited to go to offer, the hiring manager said, "Mm, I'm not quite sure we're actually going to be able to extend an offer to her. And so I dug into that because I was very curious, like, I mean, this candidate blew everyone else out of the water. They were clearly the candidate for the role. Exceptional. And so when I, I pushed back on them, I said, well, why wouldn't we be able to go out and offer with her? And the hiring manager said, well, Trier, we can't put her in front of the business with her hair like that. Her hair is not like yours and mine. And at the time I wasn't wearing my hair natural. I had, on, I had my weave and extensions and my hair was like straight and long. That's not what my hair, natural hair looks like. But the difference between prejudice and bias is that hiring manager meant it. Like they really believed that they could not put a black woman wearing her natural hair in front of the business to get the job done. And so in that moment, an it statement is much more appropriate because you don't want to invite someone in with an I statement, right? Because that person believes whatever stereotype or wrong generalization, degrading generalization that they may have. And so you have to focus on the prejudice. So an it statement, that I didn't say in the moment because I said a whole lot of other things, but the it statement that you would say is like, hey, it is illegal to not hire someone based off of how they weigh their hair, which in California it is with the Crown Act, right? Or it is against our code of conduct, which is what we talk about in the framework of like, how do you prevent prejudice from happening in your organizations is having a code of conduct, right? What is it that we expect from our employees to their attitudes or behaviors and how they act? Because You can believe anything that you want, but you can't come in and impose your beliefs on others. So a code of conduct provides those guardrails so that, you know, we can hold people accountable to that. So an it statement, again, like it is against our code of conduct or our HR policies to discriminate against someone because of how they're wearing their hair. So the it statement focuses on the prejudice versus bringing them in on how it makes you feel, because if that's what they believe, they don't care how it makes you feel.
1: Another way to think about an it statement is just to appeal to common sense. It is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of her hair. So if the law is not on your side, if there's not a good code of conduct or HR policies, you can always rely on good old common sense for an it statement.
0: Wow. I know we're coming up on our time. I was hoping we could talk about bullying and you statements before we formally close. Because I think when you get to the level of bullying, that's then people causing harm on purpose. And so how do you confront bullying?
1: So my daughter taught me a lot about this when she was in third grade. So she was getting bullied on the playground. And I was sort of coaching her to use an I statement. When you do this, I feel sad. And she banged her fist on the table. And she said, Mom, he is trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell him that he succeeded? And I thought, gosh, that is a great point. Why would you? And so we talked about it and realized that a you statement would be more effective. You can't do that to me. You can't talk to me that way. Or if that seems like it might escalate in a way that is damaging, just to ask the person a question, what is going on for you here? Why are you talking to me like that? Why are you doing that? And so it it may not seem like a major consequence, But it puts you as the speaker in the active role. You're not in the submissive role. You're not in the passive role. You're in the active role. And that is really a good way to push. If an I statement invites someone in, a you statement pushes them away. And that's really what you want to do with the bully. I mean, in an ideal world, there's a leader who creates consequences, either for compensation consequences, conversational consequences, or career consequences, but the world, as we know, is often not ideal.
0: I'm, I'm sitting here f- frustrated, but also excited at the same time, because we have barely scratched the surface of, <laughs> of just work in the framework. And I'm sitting here I'm like, but I have so many questions about the systemic issues and designing the workplace to reject injustice and to create a more just work environment. I'm sitting here also thinking about like, I want to dive more into the consequences and building out that out as a structural leader. But i know we're we're short on time, and so all I can do is sit here and just tell people you need to read the book. You absolutely need to read it. You need to not only read it but put it into action and then, on top of all of that, if you want to reject workplace injustice, bring in the just work team to help you integrate it into your organization and I think there's a quote that you all have shared. You may not like to think it this way, but if you are not consciously designing for systemic justice, you're creating systemic injustice at your company. And I I just, I've been reflecting on that because that's been sort of my reckoning in in reading Just Work is that a lot of it has been, I, I haven't been consciously aware of and designing that within our workplace. And so the book not only is empowering, it is staggering the stories and incredibly actionable. So Kim, thank you so much for writing it. And Trier, thank you so much for helping organizations transform and apply it.
1: Patrick, Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you. So excited uh, for this to come out and to continue the conversation.
2: Thank you so much for having us and for believing in it and, and sharing this with your audience so that they can, you know, put this into practice within their teams and organizations as well.
0: Here's a quick recap of our takeaways from our conversation with Kim Scott and Trier Bryant. You can't possibly do your best work if you're being harmed by the way you're being treated by your colleagues. Eliminating workplace injustice is a critical path to unlock collaboration and yield the highest performance and best results from your team, or as Kim and Trier say, get shit done fast and fair. The root causes of workplace injustice are bias, prejudice, and bullying. Bias is defined as not meaning it, prejudice defined as meaning it, and bullying defined as being mean or meaning harm. And when you layer power on top of bias, prejudice, and bullying, you get discrimination, harassment, and physical violence. But we also need to understand the roles that we play with workplace injustice. Those different roles being a person harmed, an upstander, a person causing harm, and a leader. As a person harmed, this is the only role where you can choose your response. As an upstander, your role is to intervene on behalf of the injustice that's occurring. For a person causing harm, your role is to listen and to address. In a leader's role is to prevent workplace injustice and to put in place the mechanisms and the structures that make sure that we don't reinforce or perpetuate this behavior in our organization and teams. So how do you interrupt and stop bias? Use a bias interrupter. And this is where you can introduce shared vocabulary or a norm that your team can use when observing someone exhibit a biased behavior or attitude. Kim and Trier use purple flags. The key is to point out bias publicly in the moment, because if you don't, then you're actually reinforcing it. Remember, when you're introducing a bias interrupter, it's about inviting people in for feedback to create a learning moment, not calling people out. To start, lead by example. So publicly ask people to call out your own biases and set an expectation that you're looking for someone to call those out for you. And if you notice that no one's interrupting your bias, make it a point to ask why. Language also matters. Good communication is measured not by what you say, its success is measured by what the other person understands. And as a leader, changing your language to make your team feel more supported, included, and that they can continue to do great work is one small, subtle change that can yield dramatic results in your team. Another way to address bias, use an I statement. This invites the other person in to help them understand the situation from your perspective. As an upstander intervening, this could sound like, I don't think you meant that the way it sounded. Even if you don't know the right words, remember it's about overcoming the default to silence and saying something. So start by saying I and then see what comes up. Remember, it's okay to make mistakes here. And when you face prejudice where someone believes their bias, their stereotype, or wrong, degrading generalization, addressing the prejudice publicly with an it statement is more appropriate. For example, It is illegal to discriminate against someone because of how they wear their hair. This is where having a clear policy and a clear code of conduct is helpful because you can hold people accountable to that. If you don't have a clear policy or law, you can always appeal to common sense. It is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of her hair. How do you confront bullying? Use a you statement. If an I statement invites people in, a you statement pushes them away. What's going on for you here? You can't talk to me that way why are you doing that, are all active ways to push bullies away. In an ideal world, you as a leader would actually create compensation, conversational, or career consequences for bullying. As a leader, you want to make it expected for people to intervene. And once we understand the root causes and the roles that we play, then we can know how to effectively respond and overcome the default to silence. There's so much more I wish we had time to cover with Kim and Trier, about what you can do as a leader to address workplace injustice in your company, I highly, highly recommend you check out Kim's book, Just Work. You can find the link to Just Work in our show notes. And if you'd like to reach out to Trier and the Just Work team to introduce and implement these tools into your organization, you can also find out how to contact them in our show notes. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.